if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today on Horse Chats, we've got a repeat guest, John McLean. We always enjoy having John on. He's always got something to say in the world of just training horses. You know, I mean, that's his thing, training horses, but he does it so well. He does it so logically. You look at the way he teaches and you just go, well, that absolutely makes sense. You know, sometimes it's a bit different to what may be traditional methods, you know, inverted commas, traditional, but he always goes through, explains almost from the horse's point of view, you know, so he's got a lot of empathy with the horse, thinks about what the way the horse thinks and um, just does this logical step-by-step training. And today we're going to talk about tips for retraining the horse who stops or runs out of jumps. And I'm sure for anyone that's done any sort of jumping at all, they've come across this problem. And even people that don't jump, you know, is there a reason that you don't jump? Is it because your horse has stopped or run out or done something a bit silly and you've lost confidence? So this should be very good tonight. It's always very good talking to Jonna, but it should be extra good tonight. Jonna, how are you? I'm very well, Glennis. How are you? It's been a long time since we've talked. It has been a little bit of a while, John, and it's good to catch up and really happy to be talking to you today about the jumping. You know, it's a very common problem that we're going to attack tonight. But before we do that, I just want to remind people about International Horse College and the motto of International Horse College. So the motto of International Horse College is people safety and horse welfare. And if that's the way you feel when you're working around horses, have a look at the International Horse College website internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, Jonna, you obviously have taught this quite a lot. You know, you're an eventing rider yourself, so you've done, you know, a lifetime of jumping anyway, and you're teaching, well, usually teaching all the time, maybe not so much through this virus, but, you know, you're just out there and you're teaching. You must come across this problem quite a lot, horses that stop or horses that run out of jumps. Yes, Glenis, this is probably one of the most common issues that um, I have in terms of jumping that come to me mm-hmm. because the, the the people that have these issues are not really sure why he's doing it. And, I mean, we haven't really – we could cover – to try and cover all the issues as to why a horse doesn't jump would probably just take a, a whole episode in itself. But let's just talk about the most common reasons for for the beginning – because they can crop up even when you think things are going well. These, these issues can still happen. So that's, I wanted to clarify what we can do about it because it's not a lost cause. Okay. It can be if you let it to let, let it go. Yeah. Okay. So what you're saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the more often these horses are able to practice refusing, you know, they learn to refuse, they keep refusing or running out or escaping, then the more likely it is to recur. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, Lennox. And to put it in an analogy, and probably the best analogy I heard many years ago from my brother Andrew, was that it's a little bit like a river, is that if the river can find an easier way out, it will take that way out. And trying to reverse it back to its original course will take some work, but it's definitely doable. It just takes more repetition. So that's right. 
So I suppose it really depends on what we do. You know, if the horse runs out or refuses, it's what we do about the situations at the time of the event. That will determine on whether the horse is more or less likely to do it again. Is that correct on the right track? Absolutely, absolutely, because if if the situation is allowed to continue, then it becomes a habit because a habit is just basically, you know, a, re- a repetitive um uh, a repetitive response to a stimulus or an aid or a circumstance, whatever it is. Um, and so then it becomes habitual and then it becomes more ingrained because it's practiced. That's right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I know that you talk a lot about profit for the horse. You know, the horse is going to profit from doing something. How does the horse profit? Is it the removal of pressure? Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I suppose if we remove the pressure, give them a reward for running out or refusing, then that's not what we really need to do. The horse is, is going to learn from the removal of pressure. That's right, Glennis. And we have to clarify at this point of what we do in training will largely dictate what happens in competition because the two circumstances are different. One is a test and that is the competition. And the other one is uh, where we're training to try and consolidate desirable outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a training exercise. And until that is consolidated, then we probably really shouldn't be overfacing our horse with really difficult obstacles because we may end up with a problem because what we do in our training, as we'll talk, um, is quite different to what we do in competition because there are rules that uh, stipulate what we can and can't do from an ethical and from a safety point of view. Yes, and I like the way that you talked about overfacing with difficult obstacles. You know, I think that's something that we'll probably talk about a little bit later on, but punishing the horse in front of the jump. You know, what does that do if the horse doesn't jump and we start to punish the horse? Tell us a little bit about what is punishment. You know, is it just sort of keeping your leg on and asking your horse to jump? Or what is punishment and how does that increase the flight response? Just tell us a little bit about what is punishment. What's regarded as punishment? Because some people might think that, you know, pulling the whip out and giving the horse a couple of cuts across the rump. You know, just tell us a little bit about punishment and the way that the horse reacts because I really like the way that you've got this empathy with the horse. You know, you, you're starting to think the way that the horse is thinking and what would happen about the punishment in front of the jump. From a horse's perspective, a horse has really limited or, or, or uh, very little cognitive ability. That, that basically means that once there has been a certain amount of time elapsed between what you've asked the horse to do and then the amount of pressure that you've put the horse under, mm-hmm. then the horse doesn't relate the pressure to the task. In other words, he doesn't realise, because of the, the lack of cognitive capability of the horse, he doesn't realise what he's done wrong. He's either reacting or not. And because it's delayed, all of a sudden, uh, from his perspective, there's a huge amount of pressure um, when... In the beginning, at the very first point of the refusal, for example, um, there was no pressure because the rider went forward, the pressure came off, there was no leg pressure, there was no rein pressure, the rider went forward, went over his neck, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, seven or ten seconds later, there's a whole lot of pressure. So we call that punishment where the amount of pressure applied is quite a bit later than Mm -hmm. it should have been used. And people use that as a way of either venting their frustration, if you like, or, you know, being angry at the horse. It's all the same. It's all all emotionally um, driven stuff. So it means that we need 
to, in the modern world, kids very well clear of all these um, these issues that will cause the horse only ever to be scared and to run more. And it may get you over the fence the next time you circle and represent. But that doesn't mean that you fixed it. That just means that you've triggered such a high flight response now, the horse would go through the fence or over the fence, whatever, because you're galloping at it so fast maybe, or his legs are going so fast because you've caused this, that it doesn't necessarily mean you've trained anything except fear. Okay. Let's just clarify, before we move on, just clarify something with me because you said if horse comes and stops in front of the jump, they get a release of pressure, so that would encourage them to stop. And that five to seven seconds later, do they associate that punishment with stopping at the jump or do they think if I stop at this jump, the pressure is released? Are they actually thinking I've got to count to five or seven seconds and then I might be punished? Is, is there some sort of association there or not? No, there's no association because when uh, riders stand in front of the jump and with the horse, mm. the horse can't jump the jump because he's too close to it anyway. So it's yes. an impossible question. And that's what, that's what makes it not ethical. And so then there is no association. All he knows is that sometimes when he stands in front of the jump, okay. that he's going to get an enormous amount of pressure, and that will actually make him more scared of, can I say, being in that situation ever again. So the next time he has a refusal, he's much more likely to do something even more ridiculous because he doesn't want that to happen because the last time was so obvious, and as you said and as you pointed out, the time delay between when the stop actually happened and the pressure being applied was way too late. Okay, okay. Now, that's to do with stopping at the jump. What happens when the horse runs out? You know, it could be left or right, but what should we do for a horse that just, you know, they just sort of turn their head, cross their jaw, grab the bit and just go? What do we do with those horses? These horses are very good at that, and you see this, um, any instructor that's actually taught a lot of pony club would see this a lot. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if the, let's say, for example, that the horse primarily rides, uh, sorry, uh, dashes out to the right, for example, there will be, if we could play this in slow motion through everybody's minds, what you would actually see is probably the shoulders going right there may be some flexion to the left because the, the rider's attempting to keep the, right, the horse on their line to the left because it's happened before. Yep. So there'll be flexion left and the horse's shoulders will be going right and it will be around the jump. And so then traditionally what happens is we circle around and we have another go. And because the horse has run out to the right, the rider's first logical reason is, I'll just turn around and have another go. I'm already going to the right, so I'll circle to the right. But what really is going to help the issue a lot is that if they could turn to the left rather than turn to the right, then that will put the horse back on the left rein and also in that circumstance, while they're circling to the left, create an extra, if done well, if done well, Create an extra level of obedience to the left rein because the cause is the horse doesn't listen to the left rein. Okay, okay. So instead of just 
running out, circling the horse. We should, whichever way they run out, we should stop the horse and turn them back the other way. Is that correct? Have I got that right? Yes, you have got that correct because every time this has happened to me on a horse that is naive, in other words, it's learning jumping and he tries running out to the right and I turn him left, every single time that has happened, the horse has jumped the jump the next time. Yep, okay. Well, that tells us something very valuable. That tells us that the issue really is, um, it's actually, to put it technically for those listeners that have been following this the whole way through, it is the lack of self-carriage of straightness and also possibly the lack of self-carriage from your leg. So to combine those two issues, in other words, if you lose the degree of forward from your leg, like you're having to increase your leg aid to the base of the fence all the time, and slowly but surely the horse is getting slower and slower, that's a sign that's about to happen, a stop or a run out. And the other one is that the weight in your left rein is increasing on your way to the fence, which I have to add should be a huge wake-up call for the intelligent riders of the world because they would realise they're having to use the left rein and their leg aid when really, because now you've used two separate signals at the same time, you are going to compromise the entire result. Yep. So this really, you know, just sort of avoiding the jumping for a moment, it really goes back to that very first handling we do as a foal. You know, when the foal's still there with the mare and we teach the horse to yield, and it's got to go back to that. You know, you've done this training in, in such a, and it, this is for anyone that sort of followed Jono, you know, and listened to all his chats because he's done quite a few. You know, to get the horse going well as a foal, as a young horse, as a yearling, you know, when you're first backing it and riding it out, it's the same if you keep making those very subtle corrections all the way through. And also, too, I suppose, without overfacing them and giving them difficult obstacles, you're not going to have this problem, are you? This is really a problem that we've created and then we've got to go back and fix. Is that right? Oh, Glennis, I don't need to be on a radio anymore. I think you've got it exactly right. Because as you said in the beginning, that all those foundation steps that we did in leading and pressure release training Mm. are all going to create uh, little challenges for you to overcome. And if the release and pressure occurs by accident or because we don't know what to do, at the wrong time, in other words, right at the time when the horse should be staying on its line or should be walking forward or whatever the issue is, if we allow that to cement further into other tasks, I can guarantee that the trial and error learning process of that event will then re-emerge in any slightly changed or, can I say, challenging context that the horse will then say, well, this worked last time, I'll try it again this time. Yeah. So that's what we want to avoid. Mm-hmm. And look, I think that you would see the same as I'm trying to explain. Every single horse that I've trained to jump from the word go all the way through, right through to FEI, have all been my best horses. And the ones that have been the most difficult are the ones that are the problem horses that I've inherited. They've always been the most difficult ones because everybody's had a little bit of a go and, and not everybody's done it the same way and the rules have changed quite a lot. And so the context for the horse is not consistent from a riding point of view. That's that's the point, isn't it? It's about yeah. getting it consistent. Okay. Yeah. Now, just going back to the running out, so just ideally in this situation, 
the horse should be unable to get past the fence, you know, because if the horse runs out to the right and we circle it left, we actually catch before they get past the fence. Is that the idea? That is exactly the idea because, as we've said, from a leading point of view, from the very beginning, line is paramount. Line is more important than speed. Speed, speed doesn't have any any factor in the equation at all if you can't keep your line because otherwise you just end up being a missile and being carted in whatever direction. Okay. So line is paramount, and then after that, then we want to be able to change the tempo um, up and down and then be able to change the pace as well. So absolutely. So the profits of a horse being able to, while we're talking about running out, the profits of a horse is the simple fact that once he gets past the fence, most riders, you have a look at the runouts. Most riders, and I've seen thousands of these um, in real life and also on video because I've studied them a lot as well, um, is that when the riders have gone past the fence, they almost relax just for a moment and say, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened. And we can all relate to that. We've all done that, where the horse has gone past the fence and then all the pressure's gone away. Okay. You could not feed a horse a carrot fast enough. That was perfect timing in terms of reward. So the horse has now escaped the fence, gone past it, and now the pressure has gone away. So now we've reinforced it by taking all the pressure away. And then we realise that we're going to get back on track and have another go, by which time the damage is already done. So what you're saying here is, or what I'm saying, and, and you've edified that, not letting the horse pass the fence is a really important part of this if you're a skilled enough rider to retrain it. Mm-hmm. And we have to underline that because people's safety and the ethics of, of retraining is, is not always easy. So what we really want to try and do is not let the horse pass the fence. So I haven't covered this in my points, but uh, let's say, for example, my horse runs out at a cross rail or a little horizontal rail on the show jumping arena. Yep. Then what I'll do prior to doing this task is that I would have already installed a really good backwards button, a reverse button that will work perfectly well. Because if it doesn't work perfectly well, when the horse is a little bit adrenalized and a little bit scared, your buttons fade. Mm -hmm. So you need to have really well-rehearsed buttons for this. And so training your horse to do multiple reverse steps, as in rain back, four steps or more even, when you can uh, uh, culture that, is really important. So... Now, what I'll do is I'll ride up to the fence and the horse goes to run out and then I'll halt as quickly and quietly as I can in two or three steps. Then I'll reverse the horse very accurately back onto my original line, exactly back onto my original approach line until I'm three to four horse lengths away from the fence. And because the jump isn't big, then I'll ask the same question again. And then he'll run out to the right again. And I'll say, no, 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 no. Back you go, back, good boy, back, back, back. Pressure hasn't gone away yet, remember? And then I put my release my rein, put my leg back on and say, now go over the fence. And he might try this again. And then I'll do it the third time and invariably under four repetitions, they realise that the only way to escape the fence is via the fence. And then we have a little bit of a light bulb moment between the rider and the horse. And then we can start to say, let's consolidate this new habit that we'd like and try not to let the old habit get any practice. Okay. Okay. So does that mean then that refusals are generally much easier to cope with? 
Yes, exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Don't get into the point. And, and I have to say that out of all the horses that I've trained to jump, run out has never been an issue. Mm-hmm. It's only ever been refusals. Okay. And yet on the horses that I've re-educated, I can't say the same. So absolutely, you know that. That was a good comment to make because it's a good reminder for the listeners that if you do this well, you don't have run outs, you just have refusals. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now, and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and click on the 101 Careers in the Horse Industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Okay, so we've sort of talked about cross rails and talked about in the show jumping arena because it's quite easy but what about if we're training cross-country we've got run outs or refusals or something cross-country what can we do there and how do we because we can't just go along and cut off a log every time the horse it's a bit big so how do we train cross-country to stop a horse refusing and running out okay and this is where it takes a lot of planning when you are ready to be able to say okay, I'm going to now start to school this horse cross-country because it doesn't refuse show jumping. It only refuses cross-country. And rightly so. The refusals cross-country are certainly probably one of the most testing contexts in which the horse could ever face. You and I know that. And, of course, those contexts could be footing, they can be direction, they can be background, they can be colour, they can be the entire atmosphere. So it means that there's a lot of things to cover, whereas in show jumping, the context isn't really changing a whole lot. The footing is very consistent, largely. The jumps are much the same. But in cross-country, what we have to do is try, wherever possible, is give a lot of thought to every time the horse is refused, what the jump looked like, what the terrain was, all the circumstances, and then say, now... I think what I need to do is go down to my little cross-country course down the back to Mary's property because she had some hanging logs and my horse had a refuse at a hanging log, but she's got lots of little hanging logs. Okay. So let's go down there after we've done our show jumping rehearsals and we've, we can practice hanging logs in show jumping and that's gone well. We've organised that, but now we're going down the road to Mary's to say, okay, now we're ready to try to reapply the context. And the context is going to be cantering down, trotting down to a hanging log, depending on the size of it, of course, and then saying, okay, so the duplication of the entire conditions should take a lot of consideration and thought and planning as to which jumps you need to do in which order and then how often you need to do them, because we don't want to do them 100 times. You really only need to do them four times. And if you can do them from both directions, well, that's that's two jumps. That's two separate jumps, because mm-hmm. you jump a jump one way, yes, and then you different. jump it the other yeah. way, mm-hmm. and it's not the same context exactly. 
Exactly. Okay. So that's okay. how we do it. So, you know, and I've spoken to lots of event riders over the years, and, you know, we're, we've all been down the same missions. Oh, I need to go and try and find some uh, skinny scallop brushes, uh, some mini versions. So that's why course builders, for example, need to try and take on the fact that we should build building four-star, five-star uh, mini jumps. So in other words, the, the jumps themselves aren't very, very big. However, their appearance is exactly what they'd look like in badminton, except they're only 60 centimetres. Okay, okay. Yeah, I like that. Just exactly what they'd look like in badminton. That's right, because we don't want to get to the point where all of a sudden we have a refusal of badminton because he hasn't seen that type of jump before. Yes. That's over-facing your horse. Yep, yep. Now, I know you've talked a lot about self-carriage, and this is right from the very, very beginning. All the way through, you've talked about self-carriage, line, tempo. Tell us, is that still a component here? That is a critical component for cross-country. And one of the things that the English do really, really well, I mean, lots of top-level riders do it in Australia as well, but certainly if you look at some of the uh, classic British riders, if you see them, they'll come out of the start box and the first five senses, they're actually just loping. The horses are travelling beautifully. Mm-hmm. They're travelling in a lovely tempo and they, the horse just seems to, can I say, canter over the jumps. There's no massive adjustments happening. Where I'm going with this conversation is cross-country is all about energy. And if you can conserve energy by having a well-trained horse, then at the end of it, your horse will be less fatigued and you're much more likely to go through the trot up and be able to be successfully presented for the show jumping. So the self-carriage state is really important in training. And that's where we get a little bit undone sometimes because we hammer them out of the start box. Well, already we've adrenalized the horse. We don't need adrenaline in the system. Mm-hmm. What we need is a gradual flow of really good energy, all the right energy coming in at the right time all the way through the track. So that's what we want to try and preserve is the self-carriage of line and tempo and have that as a habitual state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, we're talking about getting over those undesirable jumping habits of the horse. And I know you've talked about starting off like the mini badminton. You know, you said you don't overface your horse. You give them the difficult obstacles, but low obstacles. So what about the flat work? How important is the flat work and the show jumping horse to a cross-country horse? And what causes those sort of undesirable jumping habits, you know, the run-outs and the stops? Glennis, that's a really easy question because the only thing that causes it is fear. And the only thing that causes fear is exposure to the unknown, which means you're slightly upper-facing your horse. Uh, okay. So it yep, doesn't matter yep. if your horse is scared. You've got, yes. you've got a horse that's very reactive. So the horse, let's say that the horse is actually really scared of a pole on the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, I can guarantee you if you had have done a lot of leading of your horse over poles, that would never have happened. So the only reason it's happened is you've now presented a pole completely out of context because you're now on the horse and you're trying to ride it over the pole. But it's mm-hmm. never been over pole before. So it's all about fear and the management of it. So I always presume that the horses that are the most scared are the most wonderful horses to train. The reason being is because once they discover the escape route, which is via the fence, and they're ridden well, then they that's what they stick to. They just stick to that plan. That The hardest horses are the ones that 
give you no reaction at all. And you have to use what seems to be much higher pressure than the average horse to be able to get it to do anything because then trying to get that horse in self-carriage from your leg or even getting your horse to be uh, listening to light turn signals or light run signals full stop is always going to be a bit delayed. This is exactly what happens in a tired horse. Once you've been galloping for, I don't know, seven minutes, mm-hmm. seven and a half, eight and a half minutes, and you've done 30-odd obstacles and you've probably got another 10 or 15 to go, you'll notice that the signals from your leg and the signals from the rein are all going to start to get a little bit spongy. So you have to start planning your turns. You have to start planning when you're going to use any accelerations or de-accelerations or any adjustments because the horse's responses now are now being affected by physical fatigue. Okay. Okay. Johnny, you always give us so much, but I just want to go over a couple of things. So you've said that the aids you train on the flat should be just as available in the jumping mode. And something yep. else that you said about cross-country training, you know, we need a high degree of variation, but low, you know, jumping small and wide rather than going higher. So we just need lots and lots of variation, but small jumps, you know, like yep. you said, mini badminton, okay? We just want the horse, I suppose, for cross-country to just be like an all-terrain vehicle, just walk and trot, and making sure the circumstances don't scare him, right? And then I I know that you said, you know, just over the obstacles, I suppose you're training lots just trotting in and popping over them, aren't you? Yes. Can I expand on that that comment that you made? Mm, Because mm. that triggered a thought, Glennis, is that when you say low and low and wide before you go high. Mm. That's exactly right. Always always explore width before height. Height mm-hmm. is easy. People get really preoccupied with height. Yes. But the difficulty is if you look at all the issues that people have in their cross-country horses, they'll be running out of arrowheads. They'll be stopping at ditches. They'll be stopping at trachinas. They'll be stopping at uh, palisades and bullfinches and things that have depth and water as well. So all the things that have quite a lot of variation to them are as if it would be predictably um, able to discern that the horses are much more scared when they are presented with something that has depth to it or it has a background, for example, a background of water, or it has a drop. So it's a change of perception, a depth perception issue. The horses have much more problems with those. So we need to train drops and banks and ditches before we start rolling on and doing what we did in the old days and saying, oh, he hasn't seen a trachina, so I'll just put my foot on the gas a little bit and get over Mm. that, and you do do that. But you don't realise that um, at the time that we probably should have given the horse maybe a ditch, um, and I use these a lot wherever I can, nice big V-shaped ditches so the left-hand side of the ditch would be only maybe inches across, and it's only inches deep. But then when I go 10 or 15 metres to the right, the ditch is now 1.5 metres wide, and it's 1.5 metres deep, and it's probably got water in it. So I can use that. And that's what I would recommend to people that are really keen on doing cross-country is building a ditch that is like a giant shallow V that just slowly extends and gets wider and wider. And when the self-carriage state starts to uh, not be present from either a line point of view or a tempo point of view, it is at that point 
then you say, I need to practice this before I go further along my ditch and practice that with my portable show jump wings and my rail, which is actually mimicking a hanging log or a trachina. Okay, okay, yes, yes, yes. And then if they do have a refusal or, or run out, we've got to be careful and precise, but we can't get emotional. Yeah, we're getting emotional and we've all been down this track, haven't we? <laughs> I, I've never been in trouble for being emotional, but I've been in trouble from my for my grooms and my wife from being emotional, and that's probably just as bad. <laughs> but really, getting emotional just basically means that you hadn't prepared your horse and yourself for the circumstances enough. You haven't done enough homework. There's, there's, there's no other way to explain it, and now the horse has either been confused and scared or both. Okay, okay, okay. And then they become more reliable. We can apply underwriting techniques. That um, we've got to be prepared so that if yeah. it does occur, we've just got to be cool, calm, and calculated with our reaction. Exactly. So uh, the, the underwriting technique is a, a is a very advanced form of creating honesty in a horse, and I do this so so often, mm-hmm. and I do this as a way of consolidating and being able to reproduce a technique in the horse, or can I say a more predictable outcome than what he presented to me with by training the rider to do very, very little towards the fence and almost daring the horse to run out or refuse. Let's say, for example, the the best example of banks, because lots of horses, you know, uh, paddle the face of the bank with their front legs, so they don't actually even know where the takeoff point is. So the horses are still worried about that because there was no tempo involved here, it wasn't regular. So the, the classic one is you ride a horse up to the bank and because he can't see his own front feet means that it's really you shouldn't ever present your horse to a bank and then when it refuses at the very edge of the bank, so his feet are within six inches of the edge, then kick him and make him go because he will scare himself and then you'll have a greater fear response. What mm-hmm. you should do is that in training present the horse to the bank, and if he doesn't drop off the bank automatically without any signals at all, immediately do what we did in show jumping, have the good reverse button applied, reverse him up just one step at a time, release, one step at a time, release, and do that four times, so he's four horse lengths away from the edge of the bank, and then go with your leg and say, no, you've got to go over it, mm-hmm. and, and show him how to do it yep. rather than making him go over it. Because then, once he understands that he can lower his pole a little bit, have a look at the base, and then put his front legs where he's actually looking, which is now to the bottom of the uh, bottom of the bank or the ground or the new level of ground, then he'll start to do that automatically. So horses that don't lower their heads when they drop off banks and raise their heads are the horses that are going to either stop or jump off the bank and over jump the bank. That's a big issue because once we get to FEI, nearly every time we have a bank, we have a related fence. And if a horse raises his head and jumps erratically, it completely changes the distances of the canter to the related fence. And therefore, you're going to get into trouble at B or okay. C or okay. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got quite a few videos that I've just shot on my phone and I've passed to clients all mm. everywhere across across states and territories. Um, and it's an illustration of how horses jump when they go up banks and down banks. And I did this in hand to illustrate it 
because it doesn't even need a rider. If you make a horse carry his head really high and make him go up a bank or down the bank, you'll find that he'll make more mistakes. But if you allow him to lower his head and look at the bank just a little bit, and I'm talking about lowering his head only four or five inches, not, mm-hmm. not a lot yes. at all. Yep. But, oh, I shouldn't say inches, I should say 15 centimetres um, <laughs> or whatever. He does lower his head going up the bank or down the bank. He's much more likely to give you a precise footfall, which is his security for his takeoff point. So now he's learning where to put his feet to the bank up and off. But if you make his head go higher, it'll just be sometimes it'll be a really hit and miss. And I've got I've got um, minutes and minutes of this stuff on videos illustrating this. So it's very interesting. Yes, yes, great the way we can use technology too, isn't it, just to go over this, you know, again and again and review it and oh, and have a look again. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm, mm. Absolutely. So it's a really good way of being able to train your horse. And I, I think I did this in my last cross-country lesson, actually. I had a horse and she presented to me um, that the horse was um, not good at going off banks. He could jump up anything. Yep. But going down, he couldn't. And the issue was, he wouldn't jump into water. So I didn't worry about the water. The water is a separate issue. So I said, okay, let's go and look at all the baby banks and then we'll slowly work our way back up to the level that you're working at, which I think was one star. So we did that. And I said, in the beginning, how well does your horse, could you lead your horse up and down this bank? Yes, I can. Can you lead your horse across the little ditch? Yes, you can. Does he lead in self-carriage? Yes or no. Got that sorted, popped her on, and every single time she led the horse up and down the bank and then jumped on the horse to achieve, uh, and the horse achieved the exactly the result that he did in leading. And she said, mm. that's amazing. He refused it this last week. Yeah, yeah. You've said all along, you know, just keep breaking these things down, you know, a little bit, just one step, just a tiny step, smaller step. Yeah. There was something that I was going to say, you know, about, and I know you've said it before, it's a safe horse, is a well-trained horse, but, you know, jumping a calm and predictable horse is a well-trained horse as well. That's what we want is a well-trained horse. We do want a well-trained horse because from an ethical point of view, we've got a very, very good case to be able to continue our sport, which is always under the spotlight. And probably most importantly, from a safety point of view, the horse's safety and your safety these are the horses that get you out of trouble. Mm-hmm. The horses that are difficult to handle are the ones that put you into trouble and usually get you into trouble. Yep, yep, yep. Jonna, again, I've just got to say thank you for your time. You always bring just all that extra knowledge, you know. It's all the very, very similar techniques, you know, get it and think about what the horse is thinking and break it down and everything else. But you just keep expanding, you know, into so many areas and this whole um you know, jumping, we sort of talked about training a horse who stops and runs out of jump. We started off with show jumping and then ended up eventing and talking about drops and ditches and um, banks. And I just think really good, you know, it's just an absolute treasure to have you here and being able to talk to us and just give us your knowledge. Now, if people do want to contact you, what's the best way? Is it still through your Facebook page? Is it Train to Win? Yes, the Train to Win Facebook page is always the way to go and I always have so so many um, questions and um, bits and pieces 
uh, for people to look at there and also feedback. They can give me any questions or queries, or if they would like to contact me directly, I've even got my phone number up there, so people can just oh, call perfect. me if they like. <laughs> um, alternatively, um, I've got my email as well, um, which is just johnamcclain at gmail.com, so okay. that's a that's a, another way. For anyone that may have missed that, if you go to horsechats.com, search for John or search for McLean at the bottom of each of his pages, and he's had quite a few now, all those contact details will be on that as well. Thanks, Jonna. Have you got an idea for the next chat, what we can um, talk about there? No, but I thought that this was one of the probably the most exciting ones um, that I, I really do like getting my teeth into these ones because they're really common. Yeah. And also the results can be really quite, quite uh, alarmingly successful if you go about it the right way. So, mm-hmm. you know, this has been a really good chat. Uh, what number are we up to now? I can't remember. Look, I think about 17. Uh, well, I'm not actually 100% sure, oh. John, but it's been quite a few, you know, and uh, really certainly appreciate your time. 17, no, I think it's 18 now. Oh, what's the record? Oh, I think you're about winning it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but thank you, Glennis. It's been a pleasure, and especially with everybody um, in this in this um, new situation that we find ourselves in, I think that it's really good to be able to keep your brain active and and um, think about the things that we would really like to be able to do at home because yes. we can do all these things at home yes. and be really creative and um, and and that's all money in the bank for when we go out to our next competition. So it's a good time to have this discussion. I think so. I think so too. Jonna, thank you again and look forward to chatting with you again. And I don't know what we're going to be talking about, chatting about, but uh, I'm sure it's going to have lots and lots of great information for people that uh, want to work with their horse and bring them along and train in an ethical manner. So thank you and we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Glennis. Always a pleasure and um, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.